Let's Take This Outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Kyle Britton is a freelance video journalist and weather specialist who spent over four years documenting various high-impact weather events across Western Canada as a reporter for the Weather Network. As a storm chaser and former wildland firefighter, some of the most memorable events he covered include wildfires, tornadoes, blizzards, high winds, and temperature extremes. He is passionate about weather forecasting, risk communication, and breaking down the science behind the weather. Please enjoy my chat with freelance video journalist, weather specialist, Kyle Britton. Kyle Britton, welcome to Let's Take This Outside. Thanks a lot. I'm excited because you have quite the background in media, right? You've been doing this for a while. Yeah, I was a video journalist with the Weather Network for about five years there and had lots of fun. Cut my teeth and uh, basically lots of live field reporting and getting out there, tracking down active weather and putting some of my interests and skills and, and experience to the test and trying to get those unique shots. And yeah, had lots of fun out there. Yeah, so my expectations are high. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, right on. Let's go for it. So I, so what happened was I follow you on Twitter and you post the coolest like landscape and weather photos. And I love whenever, like I have a lot of athletes on and you are also an athlete, but whenever I have a scientist or an expert on, I think it's such a cool angle. So thanks for wanting to uh, to chat with me about the weather and nerd out a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Super excited. Anytime, you know, anytime people ask me about like weather or they want to talk about weather, for most people, it's small talk. Like, don't get me started because it's like deep, you know, like we can, <laughs> someone, people don't know in the, in the elevator what they're getting themselves into. And they're like, so how about that weather? I'm like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> okay. So small talk for people. You're like, actually, this is, this is not small talk. For no. Me. Um, you're based in Calgary, right? <laughs> yeah. Born and raised here, based in Calgary. We have famously moody weather, lots of fascinating meteorological phenomena across Southern Alberta. So that's probably where it all began for me. Actually, where it began was a fear of thunderstorms when I was a little kid and kind of spurred on this past this passion for severe weather. I was so scared of storms when I was a kid, like the first four or five years of my life. If there was thunder and lightning, I was in the downstairs closet with my fingers in my ears, closing my eyes, waiting for the storm to pass. And then when the storm was done, I would ask my parents to take me to the library so I could take picture books of lightning, right? Like just ran away from it. And now I got to go see, you know, got to go see what I was running away from. It was like a fascination and a fear at the same time. And that's actually pretty common for a lot of weather lovers, in particular storm chasers. They were terrified of storms, but then, you know, they became kind of fascinated by what they were afraid of. And, and they kind of grew out of their fear. Some, some folks don't ever really grow out of their fears, but it just keeps it. I think that's what makes it interesting, right? Like, you know, for storm chasers going out in the field, being near a big thunderstorm, it makes you feel alive. Like it's because it's always been a really intense experience for you. And when you're a kid, you probably, you know, you're afraid of it. But as you get older, it's just, it just sticks with you as like a passion, right? That was actually one of my first questions was, where did the love of weather start? As you talk about it, I can feel like it, you're almost, when you hear like a little boy talk about dinosaurs it, or a little girl talk about dinosaurs, right? The way you talk about weather, I see you light up. I'm like, oh, this has been like a childhood. This has been a very long time that you have loved the weather, but you said it started as a, uh, just being terrified. Yeah. And I, I'm told that when I was young, I was, I was a very curious, exploratory little boy. Like I was always on my bike riding around the, the neighborhood, never got lost. I had like an impeccable sense of direction. My, my parents would ask me at age four, like spin me around in a room, take me to a mall, be like, what direction's north? And I'd be like, well, it's that way. Like, I just have like a built-in compass and 
uh, in my head. And I would be always looking up into the sky. One of my first ever words was moon. I think I might have said that before, like data or something like that. I, <laughs> like, I could I could see it in the sky, like peeking above a tree somewhere. So like I've yeah, since I was born, like or, you know, since I was able to think and, and look and, you know, pay attention to things outside of my immediate surroundings, I was looking at the sky. And, and yeah, so I mean, it was but what really fueled it was that initial fear of thunder and lightning in particular. And, you know, we get lots of thunderstorms here in Calgary in the summer. So, you know, lots of practice to to get over your fear over time. But yeah, that's where the passion began. But then naturally, you just start to, you know, if you're always looking at the sky, you're always looking at the forecast. Like when I was a kid, I was watching the Weather Network all the time. Like, you know, all year round, it was just like, I was one of these nerd kids just watching the Weather Channel all day. Like I get made fun of at school, doing all my science projects on like tornadoes and hurricanes and lightning and everyone would just call me like weather boy or you know like tornado boy or whatever like it was just a part of my identity growing up so it was really interesting when I kind of came around and ended up you know coming full circle and doing a career in in um in weather with for the weather network I was like I grew up watching this like some of the anchors that were anchoring were people that I watched of course they didn't like hearing that I'd be like hey I watched you when I was in like nine ninth grade or something like yeah you know so yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, very, very much a, a lifelong passion. And, and certainly, I plan to have it be my day job for the rest of my life. So I was, I was also going to ask as well, like, was there ever any doubt in your mind that you're like, Oh, no, no, I'm going to do this also as a career? Or were you like, Oh, maybe I should like, you know, be, do something else. And I'll do this as a passion on the side. Or was there never a doubt in your mind that you're like, oh, No, 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 I'm going to do this forever. Oh, there was definitely doubts. In in high school, I got sick of like I did pure math 30 and physics and and I didn't like math very much in high school. I wasn't terrible at it, but I just wasn't super passionate. And I was like, oh, man, like one of the first things you do when you go to university is you do some grueling calculus courses and differential equations and some physics and stuff where at the time I was just not super stoked about pursuing math. The other reason was that I was also a drummer. Like when I was in high school, just in a season of life where I was extremely passionate about playing playing music. And, and I think my main focus in high school was was being in a jazz band and, and being the drummer. Uh, I was a jazz drummer. And so I, I actually, when I graduated high school, I went straight into university for, for in a jazz music program and thought I would be a musician. But after that kind of fell through after a few years, so I uh, kind of dabbled and I traveled around the world. And I, you know, I worked as a glacier guide in New Zealand. I worked as a wildland firefighter in northern Alberta for a number of seasons. And pretty much everywhere I went, and some industrial rope access outdoors. Like I, I was known for my love of weather and always looking at the sky. And like people would be like, "Hey, Kyle, like you're the weather guy. What's what's going on today?" Like uh, on my wildfire cruise, I would run weather labs for the team because we uh, weather and wildfire are obviously inextricably linked. So, I mean, I started to come around and and, and yeah. One day, I there's a guy that I follow on uh, Twitter. His name's David Spence. He was with CTV Calgary for like 35 years, like a legend out here. And I was like, hey, man, can I job shadow you? And he let me in the CTV studio. And I was like, man, like, I think I want to do this for a career. And I, so I kind of came came full circle later in life. And I was like, I've always loved weather. I might as well pursue a career in, in some way or another. So yeah, like super passionate about actually weather forecasting is probably my favorite and, and the communication. I love talking about weather, breaking down the science behind the weather, talking about weather impacts. Like, so, you know, that's the weather network is a natural fit when I landed that gig. How have you seen the technology advance and being able to like read weather patterns? Like, has it got a lot, has it become a lot better or is it kind of always been the same and maybe certain parts of the technology being able to, to, to display it are better or has it just become so much better than when you first started? 
I mean, from when I was a kid, if you watch like early weather broadcasts, I mean, just TV in general, TV broadcasts have have changed greatly. But the science of meteorology, like most sciences, are always, you know, always developing, always evolving. We're making new discoveries all the time. It's amazing to think just how it's quite humbling to think like how much how little we actually understand certain processes in the atmosphere. But we have certainly made a lot of a lot of gains. Like back in the day, for instance, you could rarely get a tornado warning more than you know, you'd have lead time of five minutes or less before the thing was ongoing, right? And today we've got, you know, you can disseminate information immediately to smartphones all throughout a, a warning region, you know, and then these the lead time has increased in many cases to 15, 20 minutes. Not everywhere. Sometimes tornadoes pop up unexpectedly, but general meteorologists have really improved in their forecast abilities. And and I mean what's really kind of improved in in, in addition to our our understanding of atmospheric processes is weather guidance, weather models, forecast models are basically a significant tool that weather forecasters use for predicting weather. And as as computation has increased and, you know, supercomputers are, are much faster and they have much more, far more memory now, like they can, they can compute far more mathematical equations. Like you can, you can get quadrillions of equations solved per second with today's supercomputers, which means that, you know, you can get you know pretty detailed, accurate weather forecast guidance from from models. They're really interesting when you think about is like a weather model has a whole bunch of sophisticated mathematical equations that are that meteorologists have tried to quantify you know processes in the atmosphere and like to try imagine like you know wind blowing over a through a parking lot and over some trees and like how swirly and chaotic it is and stuff like imagine trying to quantify that and put it into an equation. So it's just amazing to me to think how how far we've come. And, and by the way, that type of thing hasn't, we haven't found a way to to quantify it just yet. So it's it's called what we call parameterized means it's just like you give your kind of best guess or is like a reasonable equation that'll represent these types of chaotic processes. So, you know, weather in general is is a very, you know, there's a lot of chaos in, in meteorology and in, in fluid dynamics and whatnot. But in general, we are getting better at quantifying it and, and you know, ingesting that data into weather data, into supercomputers and and generating forecasts. So, I mean, yeah, to, that's a long-winded way of answering your question is saying like technology has really improved. Our ability to compute is really improved. And that's certainly helping with weather forecasting is becoming more accurate with time. So, yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to be a part of this field. Things are changing quickly to the point that, like I say, these weather models are getting so good that they may automate certain parts of weather forecasting where it's just like, you, you know, your app that you see pick up a lot of the the you know the weather conditions you see in your whichever weather app of choice are automated automatically generated by by computers and and in the realm of meteorology uh, it's going to be kind of more a transition toward just communication like impacts and finding people who are working in weather it's going to be either these modelers that are making these weather models behind the scenes or it's going to be communicators it's not going to be like just armies of people in a weather office making forecasts cuz like forecast models are getting really good and you're you're going to start to be able to automate some of that stuff you're a freelance video journalist now. What does that look like for you? Are you just appearing on different forms of media and giving weather or are you storm chasing? Like, what does that look like for you at this very moment? Well, at this very moment, it's been kind of slow the last few months, which has been, you know, partly because I've actually been able to take some time to kind of focus on some personal development, personal growth, research, stuff like that. Things that I never really had the time to to do while I was working as a as a video journalist employed by the Weather Network. But as a freelancer, yeah, that's given me a lot more freedom to to do a number of different things. I spent quite a bit of time this past winter doing like presentations, like uh, just talks at like the library or schools and and kind of like 
got a lot of really fun stories and crazy stories and videos and photos from my time working for the weather network. And before that, even as a storm chaser. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot more freedom to go out there and document that active weather. So I mean, yeah, I mean, occasional gigs, writing articles and doing radio interviews and things like that. But uh, yeah, certainly hoping to keep at least some part of my schedule open for freelancing going forward. As long as I'm able to have an outlet for forecasting and documenting this stuff, like I'm, I'm happy. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. Please disagree with me if you think I'm wrong. We've had some wild weather in Canada in the last <laughs> in the last few years. <laughs> the fires out west, I know that's been a big issue as well. I would love to know what is the most fascinating weather story that you have ever covered and have you ever had any very like scary like my life is in danger moments. Because for most people, when we're seeing these massive hurricanes or, you know, in Ottawa specifically, we had, I think it was like seven or eight tornadoes a few years ago, right? Touchdown in, in a day. These are these are scary moments for people. So I couldn't imagine being the one actually chasing it and looking at it and studying it. So what kind of stories do you have when it comes to these fascinating weather patterns or storms? Yeah, I mean, I would say the this oh man, that, that there's a number of them. Maybe I'll give you a quick rundown of my my favorite ones and you can tell me if you want. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Yeah. I mean, there's fascinating weather at all times of the year here in Alberta. Like in the winter, we get really strong what's called downslope wind events. Like you've heard of probably Chinook winds or just a warm wind that we get in the winter that melts the snow and kind of breaks up the winter cold. Uh, but those winds can become quite violent at times. Like I've been driving behind a truck that got tipped over right in front of me by these strong winds or stood on a mountaintop uh, getting blasted by 193 kilometer hour winds, knocking me right onto my butt, like literally. So, I mean, you know, we got everything from winds to, you know, blizzards, zero visibility, camera getting knocked over in 90 kilometer hour winds and on live TV. And summer storms are my main passion. So I would say... I mean, I've had some definite nail biting experiences chasing storms. I, for the most part, you want to live to chase another day. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people consider storm chasers adrenaline junkies, and there may be a little bit of that. I mean, like I say, most of us are kind of motivated first and foremost by our love uh, and passion for severe weather and just like feeling alive, being near these storms and seeing nature in, in such a state of just awesome power, right? So I've had close encounters with lightning. I've had close encounters with large hail, wrecked vehicles in large hail. We've been pretty close to tornadoes so far haven't been hit by a tornado and never planned to but uh you know you see some of that coming out of the states where storm chasing is getting uh, very popular 
And of course, you see some concerning trends. I mean, the people document these types of storms in different ways. Like the best way is to document it from a safe distance, but close enough that you can kind of really see what's going on. And and it comes down to years of experience and and you do, it's trial by fire and, and hopefully you don't make a big mistake. You, that's why you typically want to start conservative and, and, you know, you get to really understand these storms, how they work. That's why it's really behooves storm chasers to take the time to learn the meteorology specifically for even how to forecast these and how to identify features in the storms and kind of predict how they're going to behave in the near future. So, you know, but, but they play a really important role in, in say like the weather warning uh, process. Like it's the eyes on the ground. It's the ground truth for, for guys in the, in the weather office that are issuing warnings and, and warning the public about these storms. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, storm, I would say summer storms, uh, I've had some crazy moments and then wildland fires, like you, you mentioned the fires in BC 2021, I would say that's probably my most memorable assignment that I've covered to date it was the fires of 2021. I was in Lytton, which is a village in southwest BC, about 150 kilometers northeast of Vancouver. It's It touts itself as Canada's hotspot because it often is. We targeted that as a town to go when we expected the record high temperatures. It hit 49.6 Celsius on June 29th, 2021, which is the highest temperature in Canadian history by a large margin. It was unprecedented heat. Unfortunately, after three days of record heat in Lytton, a fire came and burnt the whole thing to the ground in 20 minutes on June 30th. And then the whole summer was just a summer of, it was hell in southern BC, literally just just massive fires of threatening major towns. Like Vernon, BC, near 50,000 people lived there. They were on evacuation alert for a while and definitely, you know, impacted some other communities there. That summer I saw these fire generated thunderstorm. Actually, it was the night before Lytton burnt down. Um, I was on my way back that we just hit the record temperatures on my way back to Kamloops and this it's called a pyrocumulonimbus cloud. It's a it's a fire generated thunderstorm. The atmosphere was the conditions were just right that these smoke plumes with how violently and how hot these fires are burning, that they could explode right up into the stratosphere. Basically, these clouds were probably 16, 18 kilometers tall, generating their own lightning, starting their own fires like this is smoke from a fire generating more lightning that generates more fires like you know, like just incredible. It's like watching a volcanic eruption. So watching this fire for a couple of days, just dropping lightning. And, you know, like I, I got in pretty close before they closed the road to the public. I was able to get in close and document some of the flames on that thing. Cause as a, as a former wildland firefighter, I was on that beat kind of like, you know, I know exactly what the, what they're doing out there. I can kind of speak to what the firefighters might be you know, how they're working and what's working, what's not working for them and, and how to closely safely get in close without, you know, having a risk of getting my escape routes cut off and documented flame lengths of like, oh man, it was like 150 foot flames that was generating this, this fire generated thunderstorm northwest of Kamloops uh, on the 30th of June. And, and I mean, later that summer, I went back like mid August, the sky turned like this apocalyptic orange one evening. And then the next day at like four in the afternoon, it turned pitch black. And it was because there was two, there were two fire smoke plumes, one from the one near Vernon, BC, and another one closer to Kamloops, they kind of like overlapped, and it just blocked out all the sunlight. It was pitch black, crickets started singing in the middle of the afternoon. It was the most eerie experience I've ever had to this day, I would say like, it just doesn't you you can't imagine what you know people in you know ancient societies if they ever witnessed something like this what you'd think that was happening you know you'd think it was the end of the world like where did the sun go what's going on like it was terrifying on a just a gut level just to see something like that you look at the clock and it's like four o'clock but you can't see a thing out there high high beams on like 
people are kind of panicking. They're driving away from the fire. And it was it was probably one of the most intense things I've ever experienced, even, you know, being close to lightning bolts that have nearly vaporized us and and, and large damaging hail and tornadoes. Is, it's all intense stuff. But I would say like the the, the wildfire story in BC in the summer 2021 was was very impactful. And, and it's not easy to cover those stories like it's as a reporter from a human perspective. I mean, you're if you allow yourself to get invested in your story, like you meet these people that live in these towns, you get to know them, and then the town burns down. It's it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. Like it was it was horrible, and and it's just tiring because like fires are they're damaging. It's not like a pretty thunderstorm over the prairies. Like it's it's like it's destroying property. It's making the air toxic to breathe. It's you know, and as a wildland firefighter in the past, like you know, I, I've never seen fires even remotely burning that intensely as i saw on that assignment so yeah i would say that's probably my uh my most memorable one actually you answer my question one of my questions was going to be do wild wildfires create their own weather patterns but you you already answered that yeah what was the storm called like a so pyro is for fire and then cumulonimbus so a cumulonimbus is just like a big tall thunderstorm cloud really deep tall vertically developed cloud common across the country, many areas of the world, pretty much anywhere in the mid latitudes or lower are seeing these types of thunderstorm clouds, but to see them generated strictly by smoke over a fire and like it's, you know, the the water vapor from the trees being burnt and, and you know, vaporizing the the moisture and that's going up and yeah, it's, it's a pyro. There's another, it's a flammogenitus cloud. It's just a cloud that's like a fire generated cloud. It's the same thing as that you'd see over a volcano. That's a, that's a flammogenitus type cloud. Those ones can obviously go way higher, but it, it certainly looked like it. And and it and it's capable of getting so tall and blasting up into the stratosphere so that you can actually get some of the smoke up in the stratosphere where it doesn't dissipate quickly. Like it, it can get caught up in the upper level winds, float around the world for, you know, for some time. And if you had like a massive firestorm or a gigantic volcanic eruption, just put a bunch of ash up into the stratosphere, you could actually see global cooling for, you know, a, a period of time for a couple of years where, yeah, like it just it blocks out the sun's incoming energy and it can actually reduce temperatures if you have enough wildfire activity for for a couple of years you know once it kind of washes out of the stratosphere these are gigantic clouds and yeah so like they do generate their own weather like when i was in close to the to the fire at night it was like a vacuum i mean you have this extremely superheated air over the over the top of the fire you have this local column of low pressure so all the air around the fire is basically higher pressure locally so it's just like a vacuum and it sucks it in and so no matter where you are around this fire, if there's not a lot of strong wind, the fire itself can generate like local winds around it that'll just kind of like ingest more of this oxygen rich air and cause the fire to burn even more intensely. So yeah, and they can, you can have fire, pyro, they're called pyro vortices. Any, any pyro vortex is like a spinny, like a tornado. It's a fire tornado. I was going to ask you about it. Have you seen a fire tornado? <laughs> I haven't seen one, yeah. but they, they exist. I believe it was the camp fire in California in 2018, maybe it was. Uh, one of the horrible fires they had in, in California in the last few years had a pyro vortex that actually like threw cars through the air. Yeah, I mean, it's violent winds. Like it's it would be the equivalent to like an EF3 tornado, which is winds in excess of like, you know, 200 plus kilometers an hour, 220, you know. So, I mean, yeah, it, they they generate lightning, they generate wind, hail, tornadoes. Like these are the biggest wildfires. Scary stuff. Is there any, and as we're talking about this devastation and how many lives it's it's affected, so I don't want to take that lightly, but is there any weather phenomenon on your bucket 
list that you would like to experience? You're nodding your head. Is there something you'd like to see? Yeah, I mean, and and to be clear, most weather lovers, they have obviously weather is highly impactful, especially these these extreme events. No weather lover in their right mind is cheering on any sort of damage. Right. We want to make that clear that we don't want these things to happen. We don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah, no, you're not you're not cheering on the death and destruction and and like that's horrible. And and many storm chasers in certain areas actually they've they've been impacted themselves. Like some people that live in the States of, you know, they're out chasing a hurricane and it destroys their own house. You know, like that's like, the thing is, is it's going to happen, right? These things are happening regardless of whether we chase them. So it's just for weather lovers, they just want to see what the atmosphere is doing in, in real time, right? So for me, bucket list items, I mean, you can never see, you know, the best tornadoes are the ones that are over open rangeland that don't hit anything, a pretty tornado that, you know, it's just in a, in a big field. You know, there's there's never enough tornadoes to see. Like, there's always all kinds of different tornadoes that happen. I would say, you know, most storm chasers are really interested in seeing tornadoes because they're very they're very rare, elusive, very powerful, very striking phenomena phenomenon. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, there's some really cool lightning that happens in certain parts of the world. What's called the Catatumbo lightning, which occurs in northern Venezuela. It's almost a daily occurrence there. So you can go and, and watch lightning on over 300 days of the year at night, just due to the shape of the land. It's perfect for generating thunderstorms in northern Australia, Argentina, Italian coastline, basically storm hot spots around the world. I, I would love to be able to kind of, I, I've done a lot of world travel, but it, the focus was never weather. It was always uh, outdoor type stuff, but never outdoors in terms of weather. It was, I was never storm chasing in other countries. I've chased in the United States and Tornado Alley across Canadian prairies, but, but I've never actually gone to like Europe or South America for the purpose of weather. I think it's more like documentation goals. Like I'd love to get a drone up near a tornado to get some footage in, in, cause there's been a couple really fantastic videos shot in the States, but not not here in Canada yet. So I'd love to be one of the pioneers of that here in Canada. So yeah, probably just surrounding more like severe thunderstorms, seeing seeing severe storms in different areas of the world would be on my bucket list. I know you don't have a crystal ball, like a magic eight ball. Uh, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but we've had some extreme weather in Canada the last few years. Does it seem that way because of like social media and us being able to see more? Is it concerning? Will these huge weather events continue? So essentially, I'm asking you like about climate change and are these going to get worse or are we just more aware of them now because of social media and what we're the information we, that we have available? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point about dissemination of information. Like back in the day, you know, you had to wait till first thing the more the next morning to read something about something in the newspaper or maybe it took several days to really kind of grasp the, the seriousness of what's going on and you know now devastating flooding is occurring in in some part of germany you, you can find out just by opening twitter while it's happening and watch some guys live stream of some devastating flooding happening so there's certainly some of that throughout history there have been significant weather events so we have to remember that you know we we can have what's called recency bias and and see that, you know, oh, man, last year, it was just so bad. We had so many bad, you know, weather events happen. But I mean, there's been times throughout history where we've seen high impact weather, of course. And the one of the things too, is that before we had the ability to disseminate information, warnings get people kind of prepared for these types of storms. And we hadn't taken too many measures to kind of like adapt to or mitigate these types of disasters, like say the Calgary floods and 
in 2013 or, or um, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005. I, I don't think there was there was a precedent for some of these events that infrastructure was not set up to handle that amount of water, for instance. And so you make the changes afterwards being like, wow, this is liter- this could happen. We, we didn't know this could happen. This can happen. So we better, you know, make some changes. And then you get subsequent storms later on and you have like far less catastrophic damage. So so we I think we're learning with time. It's always tricky to make a connection between individual weather events and climate change because climate change does not cause individual weather events, but it makes certain types of weather events more likely. So what we expect with climate change is, and and there's always some natural climate variation that's going on, but it does appear that we are seeing evidence of of significant human-caused climate change in, uh, in the last century. Now that obviously is up for for debate, but it's it's certainly um, the majority consensus in the scientific community that it is occurring and largely driven by you know human activity, and so that that but we're still learning. The thing is with climate, climate and weather are not the same thing. Weather is happening right now. Climate is weather over a long period of time. You know, we're talking on the order of decades, and so I, I think it's hard to tell. We're looking for long term trends, and we're looking for how things are changing with time. And we're still trying to understand how climate change may be contributing to certain events. Like, is it making, with a warming planet, we would expect, say, stronger tropical cyclones because the air is warmer, which means it's able to hold more moisture, which means these storms and, and the warmer, you know, the warmer earth, the warmer planet, the warmer water over the oceans could gener- typically generate a stronger storms in, in those cases. Where in Western North America, if we see a trend toward drying and, and warming and longer winter uh, sorry longer summer seasons shorter winters drier conditions you know say and this is this is what we are starting to see is the trend is perhaps more winter precipitation in parts of western north america but it's if it's warmer that means the freezing levels are higher which means that the rain it's actually falling more as rain than snow so reservoirs are not as high you know and and actually by the time you get to summer if summers are longer and hotter then these are prime conditions for drying out potential fuels, which is like, you know, the forests of Western North America with longer, warmer summers and shorter, warmer winters, cold enough conditions to kill pests in the forests that can eat the trees. And then that makes additional fuel for these fires. And then there are other other human caused aspects to that as well, where say, you know, how have we been managing forests for the last few decades is, you know, if we want to always put every single fire out as soon as it starts, these forests need to burn and they have burned in the past, just naturally as a part of kind of cleaning up the forest and regenerating the forest. And so there's many factors that contribute to it. But what we do see is with a, a warming climate and a warming planet, which is certainly the case, at least in the last century, we've seen some significant warming in the last 50 years, it seems to be a little bit faster than you would expect, well, a lot faster than you would expect with normal climate variation, then, you know, we're, we're looking at what could potentially happen with how that could change, how that could change the climate. It looks like it's destabilization of, uh, say, the jet stream pattern around the world. If you have less, if the, str- the jet stream that travels around the world is not as strong, which is basically a river of air that, that flows around the mid-latitudes all year round and is especially strong in the winter, if it's warmer overall, your jet stream is probably not as strong, which means that it can actually become more unstable and it can get stuck in these blocking, these, these kind of stagnant patterns, which means if you're in an area, it's more likely to rain because of the upper air pattern and it stays there for a longer. You have more risks more risk of flooding over time because the air is stagnant, you know, the upper air pattern is stagnant. And then on the other side of this, the coin, 
you know, you have this stagnant upper upper level ridge, for instance, and it's sunny for much longer than it would normally be. The air, air pattern's not moving along. So now you have a higher risk of drought. And so with this destabilization, we expect certain things like, you know, increased wildfire activity, intensity, increased flooding, increased droughts, you know, like, so we do see that trend in that direction. But it, like we say, we're watching the long term trends. And what we really need to see, you know, it takes time, you know, we're gonna have to see where we're at a couple three decades from now, how how have we changed and, and you know, really take those, those steps to mitigate the effects of climate change, you know, if we start to see, well, we could get you know, Calgary can have this one in a thousand year flood more frequently now because of how things are changing, then we better amp up our infrastructure to be able to handle these events so that we don't have such a catastrophic loss the next time it comes around. So yeah, adaptation mitigation is a, is a big part in that too, because we do see these, these high impact storms occurring. I have one more uh, angle and question for you. I know you love to play outside. I know you like to ice climb. I know you love the outdoors. As a weather expert, does it come in handy for prepping for layering? And do you truly believe there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad layers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you're asking the wrong guy because I, <laughs> what most people would call bad weather, that's, that's the fun stuff for me. <laughs> I like bad weather. I'm always looking for it. You learn quickly when you play outside in the weather how to prepare for it because it's just no fun when you're soaked to the core or, you know, like, yeah, you learn when you go ice climbing in the winter, don't overlayer when you're it's cold, but you got to wear minimal layers when you're hiking up to the climb because if you get soaked and then you stop to belay your buddy up the ice climb and you're freezing, it's just no fun. You get the screaming barfies. Have you ever heard of the screaming barfies? Yeah, can you explain what they are? But yeah, I, I know so, what they are, but yeah. Yeah, it's a term used among ice climbers, but it could happen to anyone, I guess. If you get really if your extremities get really cold, your fingers, your toes, freezing cold, and then when the blood starts to come back into them, so say you just climbed a pitch of ice and your hands are freezing because you hiked up to the climb wearing one pair of gloves, your gloves are soaked with sweat, and then you stood and you belayed your buddy for an hour and a half, then you climbed a hard pitch, your hands froze, and then you shake your hands out and the blood comes back and it stings like nothing you've ever experienced so that you want to either scream or barf from the pain. The screaming barfies, yes, yes, of course. Exactly. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's once you've experienced, you know, freezing and, you know, due to your own error of, oh, I wore too many layers or not enough or, you know, like chasing blizzards is tricky because you're out there getting soaked and, and standing in the snow, sideways snow, and you got to find, you know, your, your hotel and go and have a hot shower every few hours and come back out and get soaked again, bring lots of different layers. And oh, yeah, definitely. Like, if you're out in the elements, you got to know how to be prepared for it to stay comfortable and safe and healthy, right? So You know what I feel like? I feel like I met you at a party and I'm like, oh, oh, you like weather? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about it? And then we just chatted for, for 40 minutes. Like I say, don't get me started on this stuff. Like I and I those longer, long winded answers that you're probably just like yawning. It's like, no, it's like, I could cool. keep going. I had to like exercise some self-control and be like, okay, no, they don't want to hear. This. No, this that's what podcasts are for. We're supposed to talk about this. I love it. Kyle, thank you so much. Is, do you have a website? Do you have anything that people can go to? Your Twitter's pretty hot, right? Do you have like 20,000 followers on there? Stay tuned to Twitter. It's uh, Kyle Britton WX. I do intend to start amping up my uh, my freelancing and my content creation game. So there may be a new YouTube channel coming up soon. And I would love it if you'd subscribe if you like anything to do with weather. And yeah, so that'll basically be that. But yeah, Twitter's kind of where it's all happening right now. And uh, stay tuned in the next few months because it's about to be storm season and I'll definitely be out there. Thanks, Kyle. And thanks for sharing your love of, uh, of the outdoors and, and crazy weather. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more Let's Take This Outside, go to let's take this outside. 
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.